0: Good day. This is the 25th edition of the Free City Radio podcast. It is the 19th of January 2021. Thanks for being with us. I'm your host, Stefan Christoph. It is a snowy day here in Montreal. Uh, I'm happy to be here and I really have a lot of, I think, important voices to share with you on the broadcast today. So thanks for tuning in. I wanted to start the broadcast today with uh, a brief excerpt of a conversation I had with Daria Ivanachko, uh, who is an organizer with CUPE, uh, which is the Canadian Union of Public Employees. Um, There has been a lot of talk about the importance, the critical role that essential workers have been playing in the context of the pandemic. In relation to that, I thought it was really important to highlight beyond rhetoric, the role that unions are playing in defending the rights of workers, uh, but also understanding the social and political role that unions have played historically to defend workers' rights. Um, Now in the current context, I think it's very essential and important to understand that so many essential workers are not unionized and beyond that actually are working in very difficult conditions. So, I wanted to speak with um a representative of q p um again, the Canadian Union of Public Employees, just to highlight a bit the essential and important role uh that unions still play today to articulate political voice so this is um an excerpt of my conversation with daria
1: well i think there are really three ways of looking at it there are very concrete things which are uh front and foremost for uh workers uh, at this point in time healthy issues uh sick leave provisions family care provisions and uh compensation for front workers um The second thing is, this really, uh, the pandemic has provided us an opportunity to um, almost look at um, kind of public services in a different light. It's obvious through this pandemic that some of CUPE members who provide public services perform some of the most dangerous and underpaid work across the country. We have personal support workers in long-term care. We have cleaners in long in, in in acute care, paramedics, social workers. We have library workers that have quite often been redeployed to provide these uh, these supports. So, the idea that um, uh, unionized workers are um, uh, 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 always in high paid jobs is um, you know is is not the case. Mm-hmm. And finally, um, I believe that this pandemic will give us an opportunity to really take a look and and do a um, review of how we look at public services uh, for many many years public services have been really undervalued and um, vilified and um, the pandemic is all about public services providing support for uh, citizens I believe that this is really a good, I'd I'd never want to say that there's a good outcome to the pandemic, but it certainly uh, highlights uh, what has happened uh, and how we have not been providing adequate funding, adequate um, health and safety, um, all sorts of things that public servants uh, and public service uh, require.
0: Well, great. Thank you so much for sharing that, Daria. And and I, I was wondering if you could just zoom in on that point of when you talk about um, public services being vilified, um, can you detail uh, w- why it's important to actually break that down and the ways that um, discourses within the political spectrum that, you know, even within the liberal party don't fully recognize uh the, the shift in framework that is necessary to think about the value of public services. Obviously the pandemic has uh, changed uh, a lot of frameworks because of the urgent situation, but looking back and, you know, since the mid nineties around the neoliberal reforms of, of the Martin Chrétien budgets, can you, can you talk a bit about uh, that, that vilification and, and actually why that, that you, you use that term and why it's important to think about that.
1: Well, I think it's important because there is a perception, uh, a general perception that somehow unionized employees, um, and Canada at least, uh, you know, most of the public sector is uh, f- still fairly highly unionized. Somehow that they are a uh, privileged class um, and that the, the terms and conditions of their employment are, um, you know, much easier than uh, those that aren't unionized, and um, to a certain extent, uh, this is the uh, this is the basis of why they be, they became unionized um, because it does provide, uh, and that's what the basis of you know being a union is is negotiating better terms and conditions, uh, but it also is about raising the bar for everyone, uh, not simply unionized employees, um, but uh, we have had uh disregard for the absolutely essential services we provide um, and i'll use personal support workers as a great example in long-term care um, personal support workers uh, who more often than not work in two and three and four different locations simply to make a a living wage, because we haven't funded long term care properly. Mm -hmm. So you have um, personal support workers that um, it was a terrible uh, news item here in Ottawa, where personal support workers um, are living in shelters, because they can't afford rent Mm -hmm. in the city of Ottawa. And they come back to the shelter, and they brought COVID back because of where they were infected in long-term care. Um, There are uh, generally, I think people think of public sector and uh, a very small number of, um, you know, white-collar workers that, you know, have job security for life, Um, and this pandemic has really shone the light on both the essential services and some of the, the, the actual Um, terms and conditions that they Mm -hmm. work under. And these are very dangerous terms and conditions in some cases.
0: Yeah. So in terms of uh, rethinking uh, how, I mean, QP, the Canadian Union of Public Employees, and, and uh, yeah, so I'm mentioning that just to underline, you know, who QP represents. Um, And so, yeah, in terms of rethinking the, the, the conditions of uh, workers let's maybe look at this issue of long-term care homes because I, I know that QP has spoken out about this and and the conditions of workers I mean unfortunately here in Quebec we have a situation where um some of the uh CHSLDs are um private so basically the conditions are even worse in the private ones for workers and for the people who live there I mean that's really what it comes down to um, but even in some of the public ones there has been exactly the issues you're describing so if you don't mind talking about that a bit more but but looking at it in a bit of a systemic way, because I do I, I do uh, hear that being discussed in the media, for example, on CBC, there has been discussion about the conditions of um, the CHSLDs in Quebec or long-term care homes in Ontario and beyond, but not really an analysis about why workers are in that situation and the importance of addressing
1: that. Uh, I think there are... Um two things come to mind right away. Uh, Many of these positions are held by women. uh, And women have been disproportionately disadvantaged and put upon during this pandemic, doing double and triple duty. uh, For those workers that, you know, can work at home, they still have to deal with uh, being substitute teachers and child minders and uh, looking after households. But But in a very fundamental way, it comes down to what type of work we value. Do we value looking after the elderly? Do we value looking after our children? Mm -hmm. Um, If we can pay um, a car mechanic $25 an hour, why wouldn't we be paying that same amount to, to have someone look after our parents or our children? And until there is a recognition that a healthy society uh, looks after cradle to grave and provides support, because this is valuable for a community, um, this will not change. We have it's uh, it's interesting in Ontario. We um, during the first first phase of the pandemic. Um, the army came in to deal with some of the uh, terrible conditions in nursing homes. All I can think of is for 15, 20 years, we've been saying the same thing. You know, we have a minimum standard, a minimum requirement of of X number of uh, hours of care. Um, and uh, until that is dealt with, until funding models are dealt with, we're not going to be able to, to change that. But... Um, People paid attention because the army was brought in. Um, and yet we have been active uh, continuously on this. This is not fallen radar. The same way we've been active in advocating for uh, a childcare program, a national uh, approach to child care. Hmm. So these are just, you know, bo- both ends of the, you know, continuum of, of where we need, uh, where we need support. But I, I believe that does come back to what we as a society should be valuing and how those values are changing. And I think that during the pandemic, people are looking um, for common solutions. And at its very core, that's what a union is. It's a common solution. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's not an individual solution. It is a common, it's a collective action to take Mm -hmm. control, responsibility, and and fight for better conditions. And um, I think that that's one of the reasons this discussion about unionizing has become so, um, uh, is under the microscope, because there is a shift. There are people looking for uh, better values as uh, citizens. There are people looking for um, collective actions to, uh, to solve problems.
0: That was uh, part of a conversation I had with Daria Ivanochko, uh, who is um, an organizer with CUPE, uh, that is the Canadian Union of Public Employees. Um, I really want to highlight how important unions are. Um, not, of course, just in the context of the pandemic, but also more generally. I think the discussion that has been happening around the importance of essential workers is huge. Um, But the question really is beyond um, sort of rhetorical support, what are the changes that need to happen uh, in society around um, the economics and politics of work to ensure in the future that workers are not uh, in positions where their rights are being disrespected or disregarded which we've seen consistently throughout the pandemic especially with non-status workers and people uh, in precarious situations. This is Free City Radio um, and uh, thanks for being with us. I'm your host in Montreal. I wanted to go to a track now by Galia Bisangalivia. This is a beautiful piece and um, It is called Zalanash. And also thanks to uh, cellist Julia Kent in New York, who um, shared this track recently uh, for a mix on Free City Radio. Uh, I've been inviting artists to make mixes for our SoundCloud, which you can listen to at soundcloud.com slash Free City Radio. So here's a piece by Galia. That was a track by Galia Bissangalivia here on Free City Radio. This is the 25th edition of the podcast. We are live every Tuesday. Uh, if you like what you're hearing, please encourage your friends to listen in. Um, you can subscribe through Apple Podcasts. I'm Stefan Christoph in Montreal. Picking up on the theme of organizing, I wanted to uh, share an excerpt of a conversation I had with Bianca Garcia, who is a community organizer in Detroit. Uh, Bianca has been very involved in work on the ground, both to organize against police violence and racism, uh, participating heavily in the Black Lives Matter movement, but also doing support for um, communities with precarious status, uh, non-status communities. Uh, I thought it would be interesting to talk with Bianca in the context of the 2020 election in the fall, and uh, the fact that in key urban centers like Detroit within swing states in the U.S., uh, we saw similar patterns in Phoenix, in Arizona, in Atlanta, in Georgia, in in Philadelphia, and Pittsburgh, in Pennsylvania, where community activists who have profound disagreements with uh, the mainstream Democratic Party did make a choice in the context of their organizing work that is going on on the daily, to organize to vote against Trump. So I wanted to hear the perspective of a a grassroots community activist in Detroit on how that all went down. So here's an excerpt of the conversation with Bianca.
2: Yeah, so my name is Bianca Garcia. Um, I'm kind of all over the place with with what I'm involved in. Um, so I'm a community organizer. I'm an activist. Um, I currently work as the Director of Programming at La Casa Guadalupana, which is actually um, an ESL and GED center. Um, and we have a mission to help people uh, stay within their, um, their DACA status. So for people that are undocumented and, and came to the U.S. as children, um, we kind of help them stay within that status. Um, but I have also uh, was the campaign manager for Gabriela Santiago Romero's campaign. Um, she was a county commissioner running um, on the way more progressive end against a 20-year incumbent um, and a police commissioner. So I'm actually now assisting on another campaign for Landis Spencer, who is running against that police commissioner. Um, the Detroit Board of Police Commissioners is supposed to be an oversight board for the police, and Detroit was ahead of the curve in uh, starting this Border police commissioners. Um, but if you ever listen in on the meetings, it just sounds like it's a bunch of cops. It doesn't sound like it's an over citizens oversight board. Um, so I am helping run his campaign. Um, I also worked with Detroit Hispanic Development Corporation uh, with a grant under the ACLU to do bilingual voter outreach. Um, and just a bunch of community voter outreach, help people know where their voting locations are, do early voting, uh, fight voter suppression. Um, and I'm also involved in a group um, actually out of Gross Pointe Park, which is a suburb of Detroit that has um, just really bad, rampant racism, um, terrible government redlining, um, it, which is just, it, it's awful. So I've been working with two gentlemen named Frank Joyce and Greg Donnelly, um, to call attention to that. So I, we've done a few, um, we've written a couple of op-eds, um, been on a couple of podcasts, and we've been taking ads out in the local paper um, because, while well, the activism that we do in the city of Detroit, the majority Black city of Detroit, and the heavy immigrant population city of Detroit is really important. Um, we also have to fight racism at the source and go to places where white supremacy is acceptable, um, and fight that. So actually recently, uh, me and one of my comrades got a letter in the mail that said black lives suck because we took something out in the paper that said black lives matter. And in the back was just this poem that was like N words in the right, in the white house. And every single stanza of the poem said the N word like 10 times. Um, so that was kind of frightening. Um, but other than that, uh, aside from my work with them, I also organized a march um, in Gross Point Park called "Marching the Red Line," because I lived a block from Detroit, but it was like mm-hmm. it was like the Gaza Strip, like it was like Palestine and Israel. It's like Detroit's over here, Gross Point Park is over here, and you're not supposed to cross that line. Those people are other; they're poor. Um, it was, you know, they're terrible, criminal, violent, prostitute people that we can't go over across the street. So I marched that line um, with about 200 people uh, of all walks of life and it really upset people. And I've definitely been a target of people on Facebook or people online, mostly older people that are really threatened by the public calling attention to their white supremacy and people not being okay with it. So yeah, I had my hand in a lot of things. Um, There's also a lot of articles that talk about the gross point Antifa, which I don't know if in Canada, you guys have heard much about Antifa, um, but you know, it's basically anti-fascism and Antifa is not a real group. Nobody, there's no Antifa forum that no one knows about. It's not really a real thing. It's just anybody who's anti-racist is now being called Antifa. Um, So sometimes people say that we're the gross point Antifa as well, (laughs) but yeah.
0: Bianca um, thank you so much for highlighting all of that I mean there there's um, a lot of issues there um, yeah <laughs> I, and and um, I'd love to try to address some of the overarching issues um, campaigns and and issues that you're drawing attention to. So Mm -hmm. in regards to systemic racism, uh, Detroit and Michigan more generally uh, illustrates uh, systemic racism in so many ways. Um, And in the recent presidential election, there was such a huge discrepancy in terms of um, both the media rhetoric around, well, especially on the right, around the right of, people to vote in, in Detroit and also yes. sort of campaigning around the legitimacy of people's right to vote in Detroit. Um, also, um, there is all those sort of systemic issues in regards to repression uh, on a daily, on daily in terms of, you know, people's lived experience and the ways that state power um, um, uh, operates in a violent way in terms of the police. Uh, mm-hmm. So. Um, there's a lot of uh, fear in regards to uh, state institutions. I mean, the police particularly, but also interacting with government. So uh, given everything you've mentioned, uh, I'm wondering if you could talk about the choice that you made as an activist to vote against Trump and to mobilize people in that regard with, yeah. with that reality of you know many communities that you work with on the issues that you outlined. Having real experiences of repression from the state, and also that that disconnect and that fear that is very grounded in lived experience in regards to uh, state power.
2: Yeah. How did so you bridge that gap? It it was definitely um, it was really honestly very hard to vote for for Joe Biden for me because. I was very, and here's the thing, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, who I was kind of rooting for in the beginning, I don't love them either, um, but I th- I thought Bernie Sanders was the best option, and once he was kind of out of the picture, I wasn't really feeling great about Biden, but I knew I had to vote for him um, because of just the, the boldness that people have in, in supporting Trump and in being very honest and bold-faced about their white supremacy and their racism and their prejudice. Um, When I was running Gabriela Santiago Romero's campaign, uh, we had one of the toughest districts to be running in, not only because we were up against a well-known police commissioner and a 20 year incumbent, um, but also because the incumbent is is quite um, complacent and kind of just lets corruption happen at the county level. Um, And we, were not only against corruption but we were just quite progressive so you know we would when we were in the city of Detroit it's a very badly gerrymandered district and it's that way on purpose um and so when we were in the city of Detroit it was um the issues we were dealing with was more so voter suppression people not knowing when to vote people not knowing that there was a midterm election because this was in August which is really awkward because it's a primary in August and then the sure. um, the general in November. And a lot of people don't vote in the primary. A lot of people in the city especially don't vote in primaries. Um, sure. So that was a really big issue. But then when we would go to the suburbs downriver, so uh, Lincoln Park and Melvindale were the two suburbs we were involved in. There were literally Confederate flags on people's garages or flying really high in front of people's houses. All of those, I don't know if you've ever seen, um, there's like these Trump train trucks where people put like flags and bumper stickers and all this like Trump um, paraphernalia all over their vehicles. So, you know, we were knocking on doors or it was against coronavirus to to be knocking, but we were doing literature drops and then talking to neighbors that happened to be outside or in their yards. Um, And some of those houses had uh, like clearly racist things going on and seeing just the sheer amount of Trump flags in this, these neighborhoods yeah. really activated me to be like, this is not, this is a lot worse than than I thought it was. Wow. Um, and so we, um, we had a really sad loss and it was kind of like the old school political machine of hidden corruption had won um, but I didn't want to be defeated. And I. Th- that really was around
0: did. the election of the commissioner that you were campaigning on in yeah, the, the summer?
2: Yeah, so that was in August. We lost in mm-hmm. August. Um, and we didn't lose by that bad of a margin. Um, it was sad because our opponents didn't really do any campaigning or really have any type of campaign staff or raise any money. Um, sure. And we worked really, really hard. But I think um, being progressive was a little bit too much for. Th- our constituents. And when that was lost, I wanted to do absolutely everything I could to encourage people just to vote for Joe Biden, because there seemed to be this, um, this reluctance to even vote for him because people were either like, he's not progressive enough, or look what happens when there's this big discourse around, look what happens when we elect Democrats just to elect Democrats so that they're not Republicans and they don't get these things done. They don't do healthcare for all. They don't, uh, they don't do anything for immigrants. They don't do anything for Mm anti-racism. All they do is sit there and be complacent,
3: Sure,
2: which is, is very true, but this was a matter of falling into fascism or not. Um, And I think people really were not understanding that the first four years of Trump was kind of more him, dipping his toes in the water, seeing what he could get away with. And the next four years was possibly uh, a lot worse. And there's also a lot of things with the media cycle that we're not paying attention to, like all the families at the border and the children that are in cages and the completely systemic um, racism that police are, um, you know, just ambushing our neighborhoods with a lot of people forget about all those things. So you know, it was going to be a hundred times worse with another four years of Trump, and I knew I had to do everything I could to get Biden in office. So I
0: just wanted to I, rewind quickly, um, if if you don't mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a community activist, um, you know, thanks for sharing these thoughts about the the picture of the U.S. federal government. Um, but just for people to understand who aren't on the ground in in your community why the uh, campaign in the summer took place and why that was important for you uh, because I I think the two things are connected. And I I know that you've been involved in, you know, demonstrations against uh, police violence and police killings um, Mm -hmm. in in the Detroit region. So Mm -hmm. um, if you could talk a bit more about that campaign in the summer and how it's connected to this, this broader work that you're doing just for context.
2: Yeah. So yeah, Gabby's campaign actually started um, over a year ago. Mm -hmm. Um, So we, which isn't very common for these small, lesser spoken about positions. They usually start pretty late, even if they're a challenger um, and they raise a lot less money, but uh, that's by design. Um, These positions are not spoken about very much. So there's a really big disconnect between what the public knows what the constituency knows and what's going on in the government, um, similar to Canada, we have lots of levels of government, so like I know you guys have like um at least in Ontario where I had been living before you have if there's like regions like the York region has like the regional government, you have city government um, but in the u s with you know, with our constitution being very based off of states' rights, Mm -hmm. there's, like, very big differences between counties, municipalities, um, and states with, like, very different types of laws, even when it comes to really fundamental things like abortion, marijuana laws, anti-racism things, um, anything that has to do with, like, what corporations are allowed to do, that can change just by, like, crossing over to another state or another county. And even that's not stressed in our public education system, even the like better high school I went to because our schools funding are based on property taxes, which is very prejudice. um, I ended up going to a pretty good high school and still in the advanced government classes at the good high school with all of the extra funding. They didn't make it very clear to us how important local elections are. Mm -hmm. And how, yes, the president sets the stage for the country, our international relations, the overall mood of what's going on. Um, But your city council person, your county commissioner is way more impactful to you. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, especially majority black cities like Detroit have been systemically not educating people on those things. So, Mm -hmm. The reason why the campaign in the summer was really important um, Mm -hmm. was not only because county commissioners do things like there is a county police force we help uh, do things with the state police as well but they fund some of the biggest prisons um, at least in the state maybe in in the country Uh, Wayne County Jail is a huge jail uh, Mm -hmm. so many people are incarcerated in there and most of them are pre-trial so they're people that can't pay bail that are just being held. And sometimes there's people in there some more often than not, it's for like backed up traffic tickets or like not paying child support or nothing violent, no weapons. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of it is um, because people are in poverty Yes, and they're in jail for being poor. Mm -hmm. So people didn't know that, County commissioners, they um, handle this budget that's millions of dollars. And the budget is public, but, you know, they don't make it easy to find. So we found it, we looked at it, and a lot of the work that we did was making all of these educational materials, uh, whether it be online, in the mail, um, or us handing it directly to people. Sure. A lot of what our campaign was, um, the primary focus of it was educating people on what is this position, why it's important, why you need to vote in every election, Mm -hmm. what is in their budget, um, what their budget could be for, and they they decide to neglect, just like how the U.S. has this huge defense budget that could be actually used for Medicare for all or Mm -hmm. for um, better unemployment or whatever it may be. Um, Same thing in the county where the county jurisdiction just puts all this money toward prisons and Mm -hmm. By the way, the prisons have been in terrible conditions and there's articles about the prisons having maggots and um human feces everywhere and just like completely terrible living conditions anyway. Um but Which it's don't meet
0: international biggest. standards for prisoner no. rights, of course. Yeah.
2: It's it's cruel and unusual punishment to have maggots in a prison.
0: Yeah.
2: Um and so you know that budget is going toward this president, and for what? It's it's not e- There's nothing even going on. And then there was the failed jail, which was like this huge prison project that they never finished.
3: Okay.
2: Um, but it could be going to after school programs, um, parks, food assistant programs, um, supplementing people's wages that are underemployed, and sending them debit cards in the mail with a few hundred dollars every month. It could go to a plethora of things. Sure. And people didn't know that the mm-hmm. county is a is very um. Is very secretive about what they do. And our county executive, Warren Evans, which is kind of like the governor of the county, um, has just allowed rampant, really bad um, hiding of money. There's something in the U.S. called Head Start, which is like um, grants that the federal government then gives to counties or cities to disperse to things like churches uh, or community centers for them to run... Daycare or preschool programs,
0: and this is and, just outside of Detroit City.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So Wayne County, Wayne yeah. County is the county that Detroit is in, so it's yeah. the government level right above the city. Um, but basically, the Head Start programs have been known to give money to these churches, and then the programs never start, and the money is missing, and no one knows what's going on. So there's all sure. this corruption. Um, so that's it. Was really important to, uh, even though we didn't win we educated a mass amount of people in Mm. and outside of our district and that's why i'm now um working on the the border police commissioner campaign because we need to do the same thing Mm. Uh, and to a greater degree because our police budget in the city is it's just ridiculous the the fact that they had all of this like military grade equipment and that my friends were getting tear gassed um and maced I I luckily never was injured by police this summer, but I definitely came close many many times. Mm-hmm. And so um, so so, yeah. so
0: this summer you're talking about the 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 protests that you were joining for Black yeah. Lives Matter and and against systemic racism.
2: Yeah. So uh, Detroit actually had um, there was many many marches, um, and I definitely was a part of a few of the different marches. But the very sustained daily march um, is from. A, called Detroit will breathe. And I was marching on and off for a hundred days. And the days that I wasn't marching, um, against police brutality and systemic racism in the streets of Detroit, I was educating people on why they need to vote so that this can stop. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's been a really sustained effort. Um, but in the fall when the campaign had ended, I was definitely doing small voter education stuff in um august and september with just like something as simple as like i'll post something on social media and then i'll get like 15 dms and i'll explain to every single person what it is that i posted um but it wasn't enough and so uh the aclu gave grants to different organizations in Detroit to hire uh, voter outreach fellows. Mm-hmm. And so Detroit Hispanic Development Corporation hired me as a voter outreach fellow. So I created uh, digital as well as tangible materials um, with a ton of information and I did a ton of door knocking and and walking in the streets and there were countless people who I would hand them this pamphlet and they'd be like I didn't even know where I'm supposed to vote. Um I don't know how to get registered to vote. I didn't know I could get an absentee ballot. I thought I had to do this, that and the other. And um, it was it was really disheartening that that's what they thought but it was really empowering to help all of these people um, really figure it out and vote yeah. and then like, you know, and feel good that they were going to go vote or that we Detroit set up a lot of uh, satellite voting locations which had a lot of issues um but a lot of people did vote at them Mm. and um so that that was that was really great but in the summer um when we were having our election you know the day of of an election when you're on a campaign it it's not an easy day but it should be a day that's just like the final stretch and all about standing at the polling location handing out literature and that's it
3: Mm -hmm.
2: our day was just like 14 hours of fighting voter suppression. There were what Southwest Detroit's biggest polling location, which is, I believe, the largest Hispanic polling location probably in the state, was just randomly closed. The day of the election, it, we were notified like two days before. And the only way that I knew, I wasn't directly told by mm-hmm. um, the election commission or anything like that. We were looking at like the polling locations in our district to let people know on Facebook and Instagram, hey, if you live in these precincts, these are your your voting locations. And the largest polling location was just closed. Nobody knew. We asked people. Nobody had any idea. We found out some people got something in the mail the day before the election, but not everybody did. So we had to do all of this, like redirecting. The government didn't do enough. They put up signs with really tiny writing on the door. But they only did that after we made a ton of noise on social media, called the voter suppression hotline like four times, and then we took our own lawn signs and wrote, hey, if you're precinct this through this, you have to vote here. If you're precinct this through this, you have to vote here. This polling location is unexpectedly closed. We will drive you. We will walk you there we will help you get there. We shouldn't have to be doing that. As as a partisan campaign, we shouldn't have to be helping voters in some type of nonpartisan way and just like helping everyone get there. That shouldn't be our responsibility. But if you look at campaigns all over the country, um, a really good example is Ilhan Omar's campaign in Minnesota. Half of what their campaign does is like driving people to polling locations and letting people know that their voting precinct moved and yeah. that's really not what we should be doing. Sure. Um, but when you look at it, it's progressive campaigns and it's because the people that are electing progressive people, yes, they come from all walks of life, but the people that really need progressive politics are the people um, that are the most oppressed in our country. So it's harder for people that want change to vote. Got it.
0: That was community organizer Bianca Garcia in um, Detroit, Michigan. Uh, thanks, Bianca, for being on the show. And um, this is Free City Radio. I'm your host, Stefan Christoph. I wanted to go to a track by Rosalia. This is Malamente. <laughs> i This is Free City Radio. Thanks for being with us. This is the 25th edition. I'm in Montreal. It's a snowy day um, and uh, it's a pleasure to be with you. I wanted to now go to a conversation I had with Nandita Sharma, uh, who is an author, an activist, uh, somebody I've known for some time now from within social movements. Um, I spoke with Nandita about her recent book called Home Rule, National Sovereignty and the Separation of Natives and Migrants. That's out through Duke University Press. And I was really interested in speaking with Nandita for a number of reasons. Um, one is, you know, the sustained connection that uh, that I've had uh, with Nandita and many others um, who have tried to articulate some critical thinking from within activist movements, particularly migrant justice movements uh, in um, spaces of academia um, while sustaining connections with social movements. I really have always respected Nandita for doing that. This book also I think is critical at this time in terms of uh, our capacity to reflect on nationalism. Um, A big part of this conversation is about looking critically at nationalism across the spectrum and how um, colonialism has shaped frameworks of nationalism. Um, It's a good conversation, and I was really happy to speak with Nandita for the podcast. So here it is. Wow. Um, Well, today I'm joined by Nandita Sharma, who uh, has recently worked on a book called Home Rule, National Sovereignty and the Separation of Natives and Migrants. Of course, the themes in this book um, Really speak to a lot of the debates of our time, not just in around the presidential election in the United States and Trumpism in quotations, but really about foundational histories uh, in regards to uh, colonial settler states and how those histories transpire today. Um, you know, I've been following your work for years and um, have. Uh, appreciation for the ways that you address contemporary issues and very specific current political debates with that lens of analysis. Um, so maybe just first, if you could just introduce yourself a bit and mention briefly about this book and um, how it is to publish it at this time. And
4: <laughs> uh it's it's a bit it's a it's a long book so it's hard to be brief about it but um, yeah. uh, I the urgency for me to write this book was to make a political intervention in the ways that we understand national sovereignty mm-hmm. uh, the ways that we understand how racism operates today. Um, I would argue that racism largely operates through nationalism and that in the book I track and trace the hardening of nationalisms the world over, the hardening's actually of of national sovereignty the world over Um, so that people who are, so what I mean by the hardening of it is that it is um, increasingly difficult to become, uh, you know, a member, to be seen as a rightful member in a nationalized society, other than if you can claim some kind of "quote unquote" blood ties to that territory, mm-hmm. right? And it's a it's a complicated feature because it transcends the kind of left right political spectrum, right? So what I argue in the book is that you know, across the left and right political spectrum, we have this belief that the only people who ought to have a say in what happens in the places that they live and work are those who, quote unquote, have a blood tie to it. And that has kind of collapsed into this category of native or indigenous right? Um, Both of which were originally, you know, categories that imperial states invented to distinguish European colonizers from the people that they colonized. So everywhere that European empires colonized, they would call the colonized people the natives of this colony or of that colony. And that kind of started this idea, or intensified the idea that you know, each categorized group of people belong to a particular place, right? And then what we saw, unfortunately, is the hijacking of anti-colonial movements by nationalist movements. I would argue that they were hijacked, right? You had anti-colonial movements who were arguing for the return of land, right, for the end of class relationships, for the end of exploitation, Mm -hmm. uh, for basically people being able to be self-sufficient and not rely on capitalist markets for their well-being, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And instead of that being the central focus of anti-colonial movements, which it was from the get-go, I would argue that, you know, those kind of anti-colonial politics were hijacked by nationalists who unfortunately convinced people that if, if we, you know, colonized people received quote unquote, our national sovereignty, we would be free, right? And it was actually even called national liberation, which I think is a perversion of the term liberation. So I kind of trace in this book how this present moment that we live in where nationalisms are hardening and people who can be you know, portrayed as migrants um, can be made to be um, the absolute enemy of quote unquote, the people, right? And, we, and so I trace this back into the kind of um, colonial period, the anti-colonial period and it's hij- hijacking by nationalist movements. And the way that, you know, we live in a world of nation states today, how a world of nation states is actually profoundly, Mm -hmm. absolutely, integrally Mm -hmm. um, built on hostility to migrants, right? The the separation of people who are citizens of the nation state from those who are not, Mm -hmm. right? Those who are migrants and how that is hardening so that even if you are a quote unquote citizen of a particular nation state, it's no longer sufficient. You also have to be, you know, quote unquote a native to that territory. So though, that's basically what I'm trying to get at with this.
0: Yeah. Book. Well, I mean, all that's so important and, and really appreciated um, the ways that you laid that out. Thank you, Nandita. Um, I I just wanted to pick up on a particular point you mentioned, which was the ways that nationalist narratives transcend the left right divide. And I felt it was particularly important in this moment. um, In terms of rhetoric and in terms of the sort of claiming of morality by politicians. I mean, we see in Canada, of course, the ways that nationalist rhetoric Um, are complicated in a historical sense between the left and the right political spectrum. But in fact, they're both colonial narratives, of course. But in the contemporary setting, and also of course in the United States, um, these ideas apply to Western Europe and Europe in general. But um, I I just was wondering if you could, I was wondering if you could talk a bit about the, the ways that it's important to actually analyze that uh, the, the transcendence of the left-right colonial uh, political spectrum or neo-colonial in the contemporary setting, and why it's important to look at that critically uh, right now?
4: Yeah, so I think it's important to look at, you know, how both the left and the right have kind of bought into uh, nationalist politics, Mm -hmm. Uh, and nationalist stories about themselves and about those who are, you know, the outsiders to whatever nation people imagine themselves to belong to. Um, And I think it is about the structures of the of the global capitalist world that we live in. Mm -hmm. Right. We live in a world of nation states. And I I keep saying that because Mm -hmm. I still hear people acting as if we, you know, talking and acting about how we still live in a world of imperialism, right? I think unless we actually grapple with the fact that nation states are the kind of institutional um, mechanism through which global capitalism operates, we're still going to be a bit fuzzy about our political demands, about our political analysis, about how we see each other as you know, being in sync with one another in terms of making you know, radical revolutionary demands, right? If, so too much of the left and certainly the right, the right has completely understood far better than the left how important nationalism is, right? And how important the structure of the nation state is uh, to far right fascist politics. Right, I think the left is still fuzzy about that. Right, they're still, you know, certainly the, you know, liberals are absolutely, you know, completely blinded by the nation state. But even the left, there still is a kind of fuzziness that allows us to think that some nationalisms are okay, some national sovereigns are okay, and are actually liberating. Um, so that we fail to see that capitalism, that global capitalism, relies. On nation states for two, for two, in two main ways, I would argue. One is politically, yeah. right? They will, you know, global capitalism isn't just an economic system, it's a, you know, it relies on the political system of the nation state today, right? It relies on us feeling and acting like we are members of some nation that the state then represents, right? So politically, ideologically, That is a very, very important role that nationalisms and nation states play to um, global capitalism. But secondly, global capitalism um, operates through nation states in the sense that it creates competition within the global capitalist system, right? Each nation state offers capital investors particular terms of investment, particular mechanisms to discipline and punish the labor that is uh, you know existent in its territories and it you know it operates in such a way that there's competition right and that competition feeds it's like a it's like a um, a loop right that competition within the global capitalist market intensifies the political association with nationalisms because then we think, oh Canada needs to protect us from China right or you know whatever whatever national sovereign I want that doesn't yet exist Mm -hmm. right I want to separate from Canada and I want some other national sovereign that national sovereign will protect me and my territory from global capitalism right so it's this kind of I think the left and the right um are really in sync in their failure to analyze nationalism is actually one of the most important things that we need to delegitimize and to reject.
0: Yeah, I I would thank you for sharing all that, Nandita. I was wondering if you could address the importance of vigilance in terms of uh, recognizing that sort of rhetoric when it comes up. Now, um, I appreciate your work in the sense that um, there's this overarching um, analysis that is both historically rooted, but also looking at a contemporary sense of uh, critiques of nation states and how that is linked to colonialism, but also uh, looking at all these issues in a very real particular way in the moment. So um, in terms of vigilance, I'm just, I'm wondering the importance of actually you know, whether it's in a political organization or a union or within an academic context at a university or within community organizing, how important is it, do you think, to sort of try to push things away from those nationalist narratives? Because as you've mentioned, you do see it coming up again and again. Um, you know, I, I just say personally as an organizer, when when I hear that stuff coming up, I inside of me hear all these alarms going off, right? Like about playing into these narratives about nationalism and how dangerous it is for our long, actually our long-term success in trying to build um, the, our capacities to deconstruct these systems of oppression, these systems of racism, these systems of colonialism.
4: Yeah, I think that, you know, um, it's, it's a hard, it's, it's a very, very difficult situation because nationalism is so legitimate to people. Right. It is, you know, even the left does not if if the left can't challenge nationalism, who's going to do it? Right. Certainly not the right because it benefits them greatly. Um, The problem that we have, of course, is that the structures that we have uh, to make some significant gains for ourselves. Right. Like sick pay during a global pandemic, Mm -hmm. like refugee status right, which get, which entitles you to not be, you know, necessarily hounded by the immigration police, you know, all of those kinds of, you know, access to land, access to jobs that pay well, right, access to healthcare. all of those things are built on our acceptance of the current system. Mm -hmm. And I would never ask anyone to not fight for any of those things. Those are all very, very important things that we need to fight for. So we're in a very tough place where we have, we understand that this, you know, this nationalist, this nation state operates not just as a container for our politics, but as a way to contain our politics, right? But at the same time, we need to engage with this nation state to win some very important rights. And that's the that's the that's the place that we're in right now. I think the best way to do it is to say, yes, I will fight for people's refugee status. I will fight for sick pay. I will fight for, you know, universal health care, you know, which means national (laughs) national health care. But at the same time, while I'm while I'm engaged in those fights for clean water, for clean air, for access to land, etc. I'm also going to say, this is not enough. It's not enough for that group of people that I imagine as my people to have those things, right? Everyone on the planet needs these things. And unless everyone on the planet has what they need to live and what they need to live well, then none of us are safe, right? And, and it's not even that, I mean, Some of us will always, you know, some of us right now have far more than others, right? Um, You know, one statistic that is absolutely stunning to me is that, um, and this is a a American statistic, a US statistic, is that the bottom 10% of the US, um, uh, the people that live in the US, the bottom 10%, right? And if you're in that bottom 10%, life is shit, right? that bottom 10% life is very, very hard. Mm -hmm. That bottom 10% is better off in terms of life outcomes Mm -hmm. than two thirds of the world's population, right? That is a shocking statistic. Mm -hmm. And so it's also a matter of fundamental justice, Mm -hmm. right? It's not just, you know, politically, we need to be in solidarity to make sure that, you know, no one is able to be used, you know, no one's poverty, no one's insecurity, no one's precarity uh, is used against us to lower our standards. It's also a matter of fundamental justice,
3: mm-hmm.
4: right? And if the left cannot <laughs> demand <laughs> fundamental justice sure. and liberty, then we, we're not the left anymore, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that it's too, so yes, fight for those things that we need from the nation state, but go forward, go yeah. go beyond, reject that nation state, build and organize, expand people's imagination of who we think we are, mm-hmm. so that we can actually have a planetary, uh, uh, you know, planetary justice.
0: Yeah, sure, absolutely. That was a conversation with Nandita Sharma, um, who uh, has recently published a book called. National Sovereignty and the Separation of Natives and Migrants. You can find it through Duke University Press. This is the 25th edition of Free City Radio. I'm in Montreal. This is Stefan Christoph. Thanks for being with us. If you've liked what you heard, I'd really encourage uh, you to subscribe to the podcast. You can do that through Apple Podcasts. Please also tell your friends. Um, obviously, I don't have a budget. This is a very do-it-yourself style podcast. Um, So please let your friends know. Free City Radio also broadcasts on CKUT Radio uh, community station here in Montreal every Wednesday at 11 a.m. So, um, yeah, you can check us out there, too. Um, The content for our uh, community radio broadcast is usually a little bit different. Um, So it's great to be able to share so many voices here on the podcast and also on the FM dial in Montreal. If you want to reach me, I'm at stefan.christoff at gmail.com. Um, I'm also on Twitter at Spiridon, Spirodon, S P I R O D O N. Thanks for being with us. Um, and I wanted to go to a classic track. I've always loved it um, in uh, relation to um, sort of times within organizing. Um, and this is a piece by the Asian Dub Foundation. All right. Thanks for tuning in and uh, talk to you next week. Here we go.
1: Today, the color line is the power line is the poverty line.
3: way independent.